What's up, world? Welcome back to another episode of Just Grow It. Today, I am joined by Kyle Stennerson from Humble Roots Farm in North Carolina. We're going to have a cool conversation. Here we go. All right. What's up, man? Would you mind introducing yourself for everybody? Yeah, sure. My name's Kyle, and I am a first-generation farmer here in North Carolina, in coastal North Carolina. Before I started farming, I had zero farming, well, I wouldn't say zero farming experience, but very little. And so it's kind of a new thing. My family weren't, wasn't farmers, but here we are. And I've got, I'm married. I got a beautiful wife and four beautiful children, age nine, seven, almost five, and almost two. So my life off the farm is much crazier than my life on the farm, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, I could imagine with four of them. Yeah. All right. So you said you're in coastal North Carolina. Is coastal North Carolina different than like inland North Carolina? Yeah. So North Carolina is broken up into three main regions. You've got the coastal plains. Pretty cool because you can drive six hours in one direction and get to the mountains and six hours in the other direction and get to the beach. In between, you've got like these kind of rolling hills. And it, it is very different. There's a few differences. One is just the kind of topography and the sites, but the other is the soil. The coastal soils are much sandier. They don't hold nutrients or water nearly as well as Piedmont soils. The Piedmont soils tend to be more clay constituency and they've got a lot more iron in them. And in the mountain soils, you're getting into some rocks and topography of the mountain soils obviously is not quite as conducive to growing things in large acreages here in the coastal plains you'll see you can drive into some areas and it looks like Iowa although I've never been to Iowa maybe I'm mixing my states up but just vast cropland straight roads and just big sky everywhere because it's so flat and then in the mountains obviously have that but yeah it's a it's a pretty cool state my grandma actually lives in North Carolina she lives in Charlotte yeah, so Charlotte's like, uh, if, you, if you've been to Charlotte, then you're kind of in the southern Piedmont. So I'm about four hours away from Charlotte. So tell me about your farm. How big is it and what do you do on the farm? Our farm is, so we currently, we lease land. So we rent land from a family that owns a large acreage and a great relationship with them. And we currently are in, I guess, temporary possession of 55 acres and you know, the, the reason that we have all 55 acres is because we do a lot of different things on our farm. One of the things we do, and is a big portion of our farm income, is our market garden. Uh, so we grow on about two acres of vegetable land space. And I have about 12 acres of a poultry pasture. And that's a pasture that I rotate my chickens that I grow for meat and for eggs. And then I have about an eight acre pasture for my pigs. And they're, you know, they kind of a super free range situation over there. And then I've got another spot that gets rotated here and there when I have seasonal turkeys or I get the wild hair and get a cow or something. So I've got some extra space as well. And some of it's also low lying areas and ponds. So where I'm situated is kind of uncharacteristic of the general space of where I am. So it's instead of being just flat, I've got some rolling hills, which is really nice, but it also does create, you know, some obstacles as well. Our main things that we grow on the farm, like I said, we got about a two acre market garden. So we do about 40 different crops, everything from salad mix to root vegetables, you know, beets, carrots, to, you know, this year we're doing celery for the first time actually, which is looking really good. 
we're doing a lot of different kinds of things. Anything that you like that you can find in the produce department, you know, we try to have that available because we sell at farmers markets. We have an online farm store where people can, you know, kind of shop online for their living room or wherever they're shopping and place their orders and then we'll pick it to order, build their orders for them and have it for at our farm stand where they can come pick up anytime they want to. And so we do vegetables. We have about 550 somewhere in their egg laying hens. So we're getting about 30 dozen eggs a day, which is a whole lot, in case you were wondering. <laughs> and we do about 4,000 meat chickens a year and about 50 pigs a year. And we uh, harvest all of our chickens here on our farm, and we bring our hogs to a processor, which is about two and a half hours away. And they'll kill and cut and pack, and then we go get them and put them in our big freezer and sell them kind of as we as we have demand. So your two acre market garden plot, how many people work on that plot? What I want to ask you is what does, what does a day in the life look like for the two acre market garden plot? Yeah. The market garden plot definitely, as far as labor is concerned, definitely takes up the majority of our time. The other things take up the majority of our money, but the, but they also return, you know, it's, it's the balance of how do you manage a farm that's this diverse uh, has, has taken me a while to figure out. But essentially, when I get up in the morning and we're figuring out what we're going to do for the day, it kind of goes on a scale, on a weekly schedule. So we know that we want to grow X amount of things on X amount of beds and harvest them X amount of days. And, you know, we can go over how I get to that point because that's a kind of a fascinating process. But, you know, on Mondays, we end up doing certain things. You know, if we have some time to cultivate the garden, we will. On Tuesdays, we'll be usually picking the orders that we've received on Mondays. And so we're picking things, we're washing them, packing them. Wednesdays, we're doing some more cultivation or planting, more flipping beds from when we're you know, when we're done with a crop, we'll take out all the old vegetation, we'll get it ready to receive new vegetation or new seeds or plants and, and plant that. Thursdays are kind of similar to Mondays where we're kind of doing odds and ends. And Fridays, we're picking again uh, and packing, ready, getting ready for market on Saturday or, or other things. So it really depends. You know, there isn't a typical day, but in general, you know, I've got a list of items to accomplish for that specific week. And so as we're going down, we know that, you know, we have to plant, you know, four beds worth of salad lettuce, then we will focus on, you know, me as the sort of the planner, I'll focus on what, you know, where does this fit in the week? You know, how can we get this done this week? And then, so it's really just, a, it's kind of like, a, if you imagine those people in the circus who have the spinning plates. <laughs> yeah you're kind of spinning all these different plates and you're one of them starts to wobble and you're like, Oh, we got to get that done. Let's go. All, 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 you know, all hands on deck. That's part of what makes it fun. It's one of those things where it's, you don't go into your you know, desk job or you don't go into your, you know, your factory and push the same button every day, you know, do the same things. There's always new challenges. There's, you know, you thought you were going to do this thing this one day and ends up not, you know, not being able to do it. I have a, a funny story about that just this past Thursday you know we had so let me back up a second I've got two high tunnels and they're you know one is 30 feet wide by 96 feet long one is 35 feet wide by 78 feet long and one of the things about coastal North Carolina is that we get hurricanes okay and you know a lot of the coast of North uh, United States gets hurricanes but we get hurricanes basically every year and so our high tunnels instead of you know, cutting my plastic 
for this one random storm that we're going to get every five years. Since I'm going to get hurricanes every year, I've resolved to taking the plastic off you know, by removing the wiggle wire around the whole thing and trying to preserve it so that I can put it up when the hurricane season's over. A lot of people who have high tunnels, especially in places where you don't get weather like that, putting up high tunnel plastic is already a hard job. Taking it off and then saving that piece and putting it up the next time, they're going to think that's crazy. But, you know, it's not, that's not a cheap piece of plastic. Right. Moving on. So I had organized all these people to come and help put this piece of plastic on. You need, you know, five, four or five, six people or better. You got to throw ropes over it. You got to tie the ropes to the plastic. You got to pull it in place and then hold it while, you know, people run around and try to anchor it in before the wind picks up. Okay. So it's a pretty intense process. It's kind of like you can imagine what being on a sailboat, like being on a pirate ship in a windstorm would be like. Everybody's got their positions. So we got this thing up. Everything was going beautifully. And then we get, we anchor it on one side and I get to the other side and start to stretch it out. And it's two feet too short. And I'm like, what? I know I took this thing off of this high tunnel. And so evidently what had happened is over the winter, as it got cold, it shrunk the piece two whole feet. So anyway, everybody that had gotten there, all the work we had done, we had to pull the thing down. I had to order a new piece. And then this past Thursday, we uh, actually got it back on the tunnel. So everything's good. But that's just kind of one of the examples of how you, know, you think you're going to get something done in a certain week and a wrench is thrown into the plans and you got to regroup and figure out how to move on. That's a great story. How do you decide, you, you mentioned diversity in your garden, right? How do you decide what you're going to plant and how much of it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so really, when I am looking at one of the big things that I've invested heavily in is figuring out how to get a good plan. This was, this was something that always kind of plagued me as I started out farming and garden, you know, working for someone else first and then working for myself. I ask that question. I feel like that's a very common question that most people don't have the answer to. They're just like, how is that even possible? I would see farmers show up to the farmer's market every week with these beautiful things. And I'm like, how does he know how to do that? And so it, it really, this is the process. You figure out on, and this is how I do it. And this is how some other people do it as well. But you take what you think you want to be able to sell or have available on a weekly basis. And you break that up into plantings per se. So like, let's just say, for example, you want to have, you know, 50 bunches of carrots every week from April 1st until let's just say August 1st. And maybe, you know, on a home scale, we'll say you want to have two bunches of carrots from April 1st to August 1st. And so what I'm talking about is both applicable to commercial production and home scale gardening. It's one of the reasons I love it. So say you want to have that many carrots. So if you know you need 50, car 50 bunches of carrots a week and you're going to plant carrots once every three weeks, and that means you need to plant 150 bunches worth of carrots in the, each of those plantings. And then you have to figure out, well, how many bunches of carrots do you get on a bed foot? So like I grow on 30 inch wide beds, 30 inch by 50 feet long. And so then you have to figure, it's just a lot of math right. figuring out how do you, you know, how many carrots come from one square foot? And then you start just extrapolating that out to, okay, so if I want 150 bunches of carrots, every three weeks, then this is how much I'm going to need to grow. And the great thing about doing it on a time scale, like a weekly basis, is now you know, okay, if I want to have carrots ready April 1st, and from when the time I put a seed into the ground to the time I get a carrot is, you know, 80 days, let's say, that may be on the, on the long, longer side. 
then you know you just back calculate, well, what's 80 days from April 1st? And that's something like, I don't even know what that is, mid-January, something like that. So mid-February, I don't know. But that's essentially how you do it. So you do that and then you start doing that for your turnips and you start doing it for your beets and your spinach. And the, the, the weights, you know, the, the, the units change. So with carrots, I do it for bunches. For spinach, I might do it for pounds and things like that. You know, so I end up compiling on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet or, or a Google Sheets, compiling this list of data. And then eventually I bring it over into this final chart where I've got a, all of my seeding, planting, you know, see, I'm seeding in the greenhouse. Because the other thing too is you can do this, the same strategy, you know, for tomatoes, for example, if you want to have tomatoes that ripen 60 days from transplanting, well, then you know that you have to have a transplantable plant 60 days before you want your first fruit. And so that means you just back up eight weeks and that's when you start your seeds in the greenhouse. So it takes me probably four or five full days sitting in front of a computer figuring out how I'm going to do this. And um, it uh, maybe like two or three days. But once I get the list, then I've got, I, I can organize it by date from January 1st to December 31st of every single task that's got to happen in the garden. I usually stop at, you know, seeding in the ground, seeding in the greenhouse, transplanting in the ground. And I guess those are the three. And then, but you can also do it, you know, if you want to cultivate beds. So let's say you plant your carrots. Well, in your carrots, you know, you want to cultivate your carrots two weeks after you after they germinate. So then that means that after you plant your seeds, they come up in a week, maybe two weeks. Well, then after that two weeks, you need to cultivate them. So you can add the tasks. And I've found that that's the key to efficiently run farm or garden or anything is having this really well thought out plan. And you can take it as far as you want. The actual actions to perform, I found, are by far the most helpful. I love the way that this this is just a mathematical system. Yeah. Right. You just plug it all into Excel, like you said, and it'll break it down for you. So you don't really have to do too much thinking. You just do the action. Exactly. So, and you can make it as complicated or as simple as possible. So once you've done that work, you can then go into looking at, okay, if I want to plant this crop here, well, then I want to make sure I have this crop to replace it that's in a different family. And then once you've got the, the amount of crops that you want to grow, the amount of food that you want to grow in each little segment in whatever time, you know, time frame you want, well, then you can start playing with a map, figuring out, okay, I'm going to put this here. This next generation is going to go next to it. The next generation is going to go next to it. And then that's going to be followed by the tomatoes. So you can spend a lot of time on it. I have spent a lot of time on it. And what I've realized is you can go a little too far in spending time on it. And because ultimately we're dealing with the dynamic system here. We're dealing with the weather. We're dealing with our availability. We're dealing with crops that fail sometimes. So, so if you have it all planned out and you have a crop failure, well, instead of, you, know, you don't want to leave that space available because you had a crop that was supposed to be there. So you want to be able to just put the next crop in there. So I've found that just having that list of, you know, from January to December of what I need to do how much of it I need to plant and when I need to do it. That keeps me on track. Like you said, I, you don't have to think about it after that. You just stick to the plan, stick to the plan. Doesn't matter how crazy things get, you got to stick to the plan. And then, you know, hey, you planted extra onions or extra spring onions. Well, then the next seeding, if things are getting busy, you know what? I don't need those spring onions this time. I'll just wait for the next one, the next cycle. So 
you know, it's having a good plan is vital, man. It's something that if I didn't have that, I don't know that you definitely couldn't farm commercially without a plan. But I, I even advocate for people in the, in the home garden because, you know, quite honestly, things take money. You know, you're spending money, you're spending time, your precious time investing in your garden. And if you're just going to do it and, and wing it and see how it goes, I mean, it could go okay. But how much better could it be if you had a plan where you are figuring out exactly what you need to do and when you need to do it and you have an expectation and a goal as well. So those are just some, some things that I've learned over the years and I think are worth looking into. I agree with everything you said about it also being applicable to home gardeners too. Just like you say, having a plan will really, I don't know, make believe, make your gardening experience a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah, for sure. It definitely makes your farming experience more enjoyable. Yeah, <laughs> you don't feel lost. All right. So what, what kind of equipment do you use? Like what kind of cedar do you use? Oh, for cedars, I've got, I've tried a lot of different cedars. So, you know, you've got your, your everybody's probably familiar with the Earthway cedar. And that is, you familiar with the Earthway cedar? Yes. Yeah. So the Earthway is kind of the classic cedar. And I've used that in the past, but, you know, ultimately it becomes a seed grinder. Depends on what you're seeding, but especially small seeds, it just makes, it's not the best. Some things are, it's great for beans, peas can do really well, corn, it can do a good job, spinach can do okay. But over the years, I've kind of gotten used to a couple of different kinds of cedars. One that I'm using a lot right now is called the Jang cedar, J-A-N-G, and it's a, the model is a JP1, just means it's the it's a single row cedar. They make them in three row, five row, and they're not cheap. This cedar is like $600 for this thing, but it's really well made. It's made, I think, by a Korean company, and it's like the Earthway where the front wheel turns the mechanism for dropping the seeds, but it's unlike the Earthway in that there's no plates. Instead, they use a roller. It's a roller that has that's attached to a sprocket that is sitting inside of a chain that's attached to another sprocket that's that has a gear ratio that defines how fast the roller turns. And so it's got this these seeds drop into these little divots in this roller and a brush brushes the excess off. And so it drops it a little bit at a time. And I like it because the rollers and the, the brushing off mechanism works really well. So, you know, with the Earthway, there's really one setting. It's just go. You know, with the Jang, there's a bunch of different settings based on the size of the gear that you put in the front and the back of the, the sort of gear turning mechanism. It'll dictate how fast the roller turns. So as you're moving along, you can either drop more seeds or less seeds. So it's very versatile. You know, you can use it for whatever kinds of crops you need to use it for. The other thing that's beautiful about it is it's heavy. And so you can push it through wood chips. You can push it through sand. You can push it through clay and rocks. And it's going to still drop your seeds and cover it up. And you're going to get, you know, great seed spacing. So I've been using that a lot. There's a cedar from Johnny's I've been using. Uh, it's the four-row pinpoint cedar. And... That basically is a pretty simple thing. It also has little divots on a little bar that rolls and you've got brush, a brush that brushes off the excess. It's pretty good. You have to really know how to use it for specific things. And then I, I've tried the six row cedar from Johnny's. I haven't really gotten to any of the glass or cedars, but I really like the Jang. It does a really good job. It's hard. It's hard to beat that one. I haven't gotten the, I guess, priority 
the funds prioritized to step up to the three row or the five row because they get even more expensive. But the one row is really good. And, you know, even for a home scale, if you've got a little bit of space or even a little bit more than a little bit of space and you're trying to get perfectly spaced carrots without having to go in there and thin them out, the Jang will do that for you. The Earthway will not. So that, you know, anyway, that, that's the kind of cedar I use. As far as tractors and things like that, to establish my growing space, I did use a disc harrow on a tractor to kind of just mark out, I'm going to grow on this two acres of land. But once I've got, you know, and I've got kind of two separate areas. The one area that I've got that I grow a lot of high turnaround things like quick turnover type crops. It's a very, very sandy area um, that I've added a lot of compost over the years and, and balanced the soil minerals, but it doesn't need tilling year after year. In fact, I'm a, you know, I, I would call myself a no-till grower mostly. There are some times when, you know, and we can maybe talk about that. But so with this one area, I'm not really using a lot of heavy equipment. I'm instead using big tarps to, you know, once I've done growing on a certain area, I'll, you know, basically cook out all the weeds by covering it with an impermeable surface that's, you know, black, so it heats up really quickly and uh, it'll kill all the vegetation off. And then I'm just raking out the old stuff and broad forking if I need to and putting down some new minerals or nutrients and letting it roll. And instead of having to go in there with a BCS or a tiller or something like that, which I've done in the past, but I really like minimal equipment. Number one, because it's easier. And number two, because it's, it tends to be quicker. It's not always appropriate, but it, you know, those two for sure. What's up world. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, then you should head over to YouTube and subscribe to the big city gardener YouTube channel. Then I have videos to go along with a lot of these podcasts and besides that, over there, I give you a bunch of information to help you just grow it and even to help you just grow it better. All right, let's get back to the show. Hey, you said you call yourself a no-till farmer. Do you feel or do you know any other farmers that practice no-till? Or do you see that most farmers that you know, they're still after harvesting their crops, they're coming in and tilling the soil? I'd say the farmers that I'm closest with there's kind of a, a good mix. You know, I know some really, you know, traditional older farmers who they're definitely going to get their crop, plow it. This is an interesting conversation because what no-till has kind of come to mean in the kind of bigger agricultural community means this. It means once you're done with the crop, let's just say you grow 100 acres of corn. Once you're done with that corn, you're going to mow it or, you know, once you've harvested it, it kind of mows it. You can then drill. So, you know, just this thing that they pull behind a tractor, it essentially cuts and opens up a little trench and drops some seed down. Maybe it's soybeans. And then you're, you're drilling and planting soybeans right after that corn, but then they're dousing it with Roundup after that. And yes, you're killing the weeds and yes, you're also no-till, but you're not really doing anything for the soil. You're actually causing some problems. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So no-till means different things to different people. I would say the most appropriate for actually farming would be minimal tillage. And what I mean is, you know, there is a certain level, like a certain depth that you can go in the soil and you really should work as hard as you can not to disturb it. And I'd say that's about, you know, two to four inches. So once you get past about four inches, you really don't want to mess with that soil because it's created a vast network of 
you know, fungal hyphae and earthworm channels and, you know, beetle you know, tunnels and root, you know, roots have penetrated down in there and they have established themselves. They've died. They've created these air pockets. It's this vast network of structure and you don't want to really mess with that. You know, even, let's just call it two inches. Two inches is good enough. So below about two inches, if you can leave that, you are going to have way better success just off the bat with growing anything uh, because you're leaving that structure in place. Because that structure, you know, this is one of the things that, that I advocate for when I'm teaching people is that soil is a living thing in itself. You know, obviously the minerals aren't alive, but the soil, the things that live in the soil are alive. You know, they say that it's a crazy number. So in one single tablespoon of soil, okay, you've got 50 billion microorganisms, okay? That's a huge number. That's more, you know, five times the amount of people on earth in one tablespoon of soil. And they all live in that layer. You know, some of them live in the top two of the two inches, but most of them live in, I don't know if I should say most of them, but the structure that's a, that exists below two inches of your soil is the apartment complexes, the soil, it's the homes, it's the, the suburbs, it's the, that's where the microbes live. And when you start destroying that, you expose their home to oxygen and it can cause a couple of things. One thing is it can cause, number one, just a lot of them die from being exposed. It can cause, you know, this ruining of their connections to each other and it's really not a good situation. The other thing that can happen, well, this is a side note, but when you use a, a super soluble nitrogen, natural gas-based fertilizer, which is what a lot of the commercial fertilizers are, you end up causing this hyper growth of these microorganisms and they end up cannibalizing themselves and leave the soil in you know, a deficit of soil life. That's why over the years, soils become more and more sterile as they use fertilizers, but that's a side note. But it's, yeah, it's crazy. It's this, the soil itself acts as this network and web of these living things that know how to adjust the balance, the, the chemical balance of a soil. I learned this in college one time, and you know, it's just interesting that I learned it in college. I didn't learn much else in college. This is one of the things I learned is that you hit in a forest, like uh, I think it's, I can't remember what species of tree, but they've had documentation of nutrient deficiencies in one end of the forest in the beginning of a year and surplus in another end of the forest. And they've come back and checked that in the same year at the end of the season and the deficiencies are gone. They're in balance. Basically they've sent like the, the network that existed in the soil had grabbed, had told the other side of the forest, Hey, we need some of that over here. And they've worked, it's worked itself over to the other side of the forest. I mean, is that, that's mind blowing. I know about like you're describing it the highway that's built by all these these fungi and this microbiology in the soil i think some other people listening i think this should blow your mind right the just how much life is actually in soil yeah it, it's super fascinating so that you know if we know that our soils are alive we wouldn't we want to treat them well and minimal tillage is the way to do that you know we have to balance ideals too it's really hard to get a beautiful stand of small seeded crops where you can cultivate it and create just this beautiful very efficient bed like carrots for instance it's very hard to do that in you know, a situation that you never touch at all. You're only planting into think, you know, old material that you piled carbonaceous materials on top and you're planting into that. You know, I know people that are strictly 
no dig, no nothing. And I get that. I understand that. But you also have to, you know, for me, I've got to be realistic. It, it's not, you know, logistically possible for me to do that and to run a farm commercially. So that's why I say if we can disturb the least amount of soil as possible, we've done our jobs as stewards. And because we're not just trying to steward us as stewards, as farmers, we're stewarding everything. And, and what we don't see is probably the most important because it gives life to everything that we do see. So you mentioned that dumping high nitrogen fertilizers into your soil to feed your crops every year that decreases the amount of life in the soil, correct? Yeah. And that also applies to home gardeners, right? Yeah. I mean, and you can, you know, it really, it's the, I think mainly the old timers that you'll hear this from, but you know, if they're using your standard, you know, 10, 10, 10 fertilizer, you got to use a little bit more year after year growing the same to to get the same result. And part of that is because the, the microbes that exist are expanding so quickly and they're, they're consuming organic matter when they expand that quickly and then they end up dying off and, and you lose your, your organic matter over time as well. So and organic matter is what feeds the microbes. So essentially what you're doing is you're making your homes, the soil's home or the, the microbes home, you're making it less hospitable to your microbes. You're making it less you know nice for them to come and move in. You want to create the nicest neighborhood possible for your for your living soil microorganisms and you're not going to do that by putting you know your conventional fertilizer on there so how do you create that you know that that environment that the microbes want in sandy soil like you say you have out there yeah that's a good question the um you know soil sandy soil is a really good soil to grow vegetables in mainly because roots can penetrate it really quickly and it drains really well so you know you know vegetables don't really like wet soils, perennial trees and and fruit trees, those are kind of different, but with annual vegetables specifically, sandy soils are great. The main thing that I have to focus on is adding organic matter because a sandy soil just on its own has two things that are really wrong with it. One is that it does not hold water very well. And one is that it does not hold nutrients very well. And to kind of understand that, you got to understand the, the chemistry of soil. So if you can imagine, this is just a quick back of the napkin explanation, but soil particles, you can imagine sand. Sand is, has, a, has a big, you know, you can rub sand in your fingers and you can, it's rough, it's coarse. So it has a big particle size. Clay would be on the opposite end. It's got a very small flaky particle size. That's why you can smooth around your fingers and it feels real smooth. So each soil particle has a certain electrical charge to it. The sand has a very weak electrical charge and the clay has a very strong electrical charge because each particle is going to hold the same charge. So a sand particle, it'd be like, and so in the comparison, a sand particle is like a, a VW Beetle, let's just call it, VW Bug, Volkswagen. And a clay particle is like the size of a snap pea. So it's very different. Because of that, when an element like nitrogen, for instance, um, it enters into your soil, it's not going to bind to the sand nearly as hard as it's going to bind to, to the clay. That happens, you know, that's the same thing with hydrogen. That's why water binds to sand much more poorly than it binds to clay. And so because of that, so clay soils in general, they hold nutrients, they hold water very, very well, sometimes too well. In fact, the way that you make both of them more hospitable to growing anything is by adding a buffering 
building material, which is organic matter or compost. Compost is really great at this. And what compost does, it, it increases the, the bond of water and nutrients into your sandy soil. In the same time, it decreases the bond in the, of nutrients and water to a clay soil. So it, it lets a clay soil drain better and it lets a sandy soil hold water better. So for me, since I've got sandy soil, I've added a lot of compost over the years. And so it's created this buffer where I now have you know a sandy loam which is ideal for growing vegetables. That's one thing. But the other thing is, you know, doing a proper soil test and doing a balance of minerals. And so if we think of soil and the microorganisms that exist in the soil, a great sort of, I guess, metaphor or analogy would be in the human body, it would be our guts. So our intestines, inside of our intestines is, is a vast network of bacteria and, and things that digest our food. Well, if, if the mineral balance of our bodies is not correct, then it's not going to be a hospitable home for our gut bacteria. And then we develop problems like, you know, um, intolerances or allergies to certain things. And it's the same thing with the soil. If, if the mineral balance of your soil is not correct, then your microbes, you're not creating that you know nice neighborhood for your microbes. And so one of the things that I've always done and always stress to people who ask me, how do you, know, how do you make your garden better, is that you have to make sure you're testing your soil and it helps if you can send it, send a sam soil sample to someone who's going to give you organic recommendations, who you know, actually knows soil, who knows what it means to use organic minerals to, in, you know, to, to balance your soil out. And because um, you know, once you've done that, once you've balanced your minerals, and you've added your organic matter, then you've got a really valuable thing. And that, that is something that you just drop a seed into and it grows into a beautiful plant. And that's a valuable resource. So balancing my soil minerals and increasing my organic matter have been two huge things for me as far as growing anything. Hey, you mentioned a soil test. How often do you think or how often do you test your soil? And then how often should home gardeners be testing their soil? I test my soil just once a year, and I think that's sufficient. You know, some people will test soils. You know, people who grow on huge acreages, a lot of times they'll test like once every three weeks. And that's mainly because, you know, they've only got one shot to make their crop. You know, just consider like out in California, you got like hundreds of acres of lettuce. Okay, if you want to make sure you maximize, you know, you're going to plant all that lettuce. Maybe you don't plant it all at one time, but you're planting huge amounts of lettuce at one time. Well, if you're imbalanced, then you're going to have a big problem. So that's why they test more and more often to make sure that every step of the way they're doing it right. For someone who's really diversified, which, you know, different crops have different needs. And for home gardeners, once a year is sufficient, I think. But making sure you do once a year can help a lot. Skipping a year can cause a lot of time, you know, it can cost you some time. So I always recommend once a year and, and mainly right after the summer. So you want to test your soil when the microbial activity is near its highest, which is, you know, in the heat of the summer or mainly like almost into fall when things are still really working well, that the plant's growth are slowing down, but the soil is still very active. That's when you want to test it. Okay. And then once you get your recommendation, if you test it at the end of the summer and then you get your recommendation and it tells you add these nutrients and this organic matter, you're able to put that in in the fall and allow it to, to work throughout the fall and the winter so you're back ready again for the spring? 
Correct. That's that's right. You know, if you wanted to see how it did, you could always do a test in the spring and see well, how did that work. You know, that's one of the cool things about testing your soil is that you know if what you did worked. Yeah, man. I know you grow so many different different varieties vegetables out there. Do you practice crop rotation? We do. We we I have a couple theories on or a couple ways I view crop rotation. I definitely rotate my crops. Now, how strict I am about crop rotation is another matter. I'm not going to plant, you know, my broccoli right after I'm planting my cabbage, you know, in the same spot. Right. I take things on a family basis. So, you know, the things in the Nebraska family, like your broccoli, cabbages, cauliflowers, I'll make sure that I'm growing some, you know, maybe like a nightshade in there, like potatoes or an allium, onions, you know, things that I've tried to follow a strict rotation. I think, you know, a lot of people are probably familiar with Elliot Coleman and his book, New Organic, New Organic Grower. That's been a huge help to so many people who have been started to grow anything. And he talks about a system of laying it all out in the beginning and planting your garden accordingly. And I've tried that, but I've found, especially getting started, you know, because I've had crop failures, because I've had things that came up, like I wasn't able to plant something in a certain week and, you know, maybe, you know, something happened in the greenhouse or I've just run out of time. I found that if you follow it, if you follow that crop rotation too strictly, then your hands are kind of tied and you're not able to use all the space that you've got. And so, you know, I kind of advocate, yes, try to rotate your crops. Don't follow the same thing over and over and over again, but ha- keep it in the back of your mind. And, and the main thing that you should be focusing on is just get the most out of your space. If you had to follow lettuce with lettuce for a single season, it's not the end of the world. But in general, you should try not to grow the same thing over and over again in the same spot for sure. Did you go to school for, did you always want to be a farmer? That's my real question. <laughs> Man, that's, no, that is a good question. I, I'm so surprised sometimes about where I'm at because I grew up here in Wilmington and it's coastal Southeast North Carolina. I got the beach 10 minutes away from me. Okay. I grew up a beach bum gamer. Okay. (laughs) Where I just, I played as many video games as possible and went to the, eventually got into surfing and you know, things that they're definitely not old video games, mainly mostly a waste of time, but surfing is definitely not a waste of time, but it's, it's so different. It's, I mean, I guess surfing, you know, that's a whole different thing, but surfing and farming, there are similarities. But the point is I was definitely not have my, did not have my hands in the dirt. So I attribute to where I'm at right now to kind of three experiences that I've had in life. Number one, the first experience when I was real young, my mom would take me to a family friend's house as my daycare instead of taking me to a daycare. I was an only child and my mom just took me to a family friend's house and they lived on this little homestead, which was really cool. It was where I got my first taste of muscadine grapes, which is still one of my favorite flavors in the world. They had this barn and workshop over here and the house over here and they had a garden over here. And I remember, I mean, those just being there, seeing that in my mind is very vivid. And I love big open spaces because of that, but not just, you know, huge open spaces where you can't see anything well laid out kind of homestead farm type things, you know, where you can walk from one thing to the next and, you know, you never know who's around the corner, like a cat or a dog or, you know, um, you know, you can see a new thing in your garden here and there. So I like being in that kind of a space. The second experience happened when I was in middle school. It was in the summer and I was totally over like day camps, you know, because my mom was not allowed, about, allowed to let me stay at home all summer <laughs> by myself in middle school. 
They said, you go to camp or you can go to New Hampshire and work on our friend Chris's farm. So he has a farm up in New Hampshire called uh, Owens Truck Farm. And it's, I definitely did not appreciate what it was back then. Now I've been back since and it's like a magical place. It's, it's such a cool place. It's a, you know, it's just a, probably a three acre market garden, but he sells everything from on a roadside stand. A lot of it's just help your, like a honor system. And the guy's been dumping manure on his land, like sort of compost and manure for like 30 years. And that soil is some of the richest, craziest looking soil I've ever put my hands into. So I, my mom sent me up there for six weeks in the summertime for three straight summers. And it was the first time that I really got my hands like looking like they've done work. You know that, you know what happens when you pick peas for a really long time (laughs) and like right on the, the side of your finger, they get kind of dry and sort of cracked. Yeah. I was so proud of that. I was like, yes, I'm a hard worker. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm in middle school. I've never done anything like that in my life. So that was the second one. So I went to, I went to, after I graduated, graduated high school, I went to college at NC State University and I got, I was in the horticulture department, not because I thought I wanted to be a farmer, but because somebody told me it was fun. They said, you should be in a horticulture major. It's fun. I was like, okay, cool. I'll do that. And um, it was fun, you know, truth be told. But after I graduated, my wife and I, we had gotten married in college and we had decided together to go and live and work on a farm in Burlington, North Carolina, which is in the Piedmont of North Carolina and at a place called the Sunset Farms. And it was very similar to what I'm experiencing now. And so that this is the third level of farming that I've done, but I got to see a lot more of the back end of farming, like, you know, getting to see something from, you know, because when I was up in New Hampshire, I was just a pea picker and that's basically it, but it was also fun. But here, now that I'm at, you know, well, here I say you know, years ago when I was working at Sunset Farms, I got to see something where you would be able to put a seed in the ground. You'd be front and center to watch it grow and mature. You'd have to, you know, tend it, you know, weed it, you know, make sure that it's got everything it needs. You'd harvest that. You'd bring it to a market where you interact with people who are excited to see you and they want to buy the food that you've worked so hard for and they've given you their hard-earned money for it so you can scrape a little off the top of yourself and reinvest it to do the same thing over and over and over again. It blew my mind. I mean, to think that you could do that and make a living, I was like this. After about a year working there and seeing everything from seed to harvest to interacting with people to you know eating the best food on a daily basis, I said, this is what I want to do. Yeah, and this was supposed to be just like a, a stepping stone to my real career. Anyway, it ended up being my real career because I could not, I, I was hooked. You know, right. And so about a year into that, I had my, my first child. We had a year into working at Sunset Farm. So we lived there and worked there for another year. And then we decided to move back to our hometown. And that's when we started looking for land and found some. And I initially wanted just to, to rent five acres to have a little market garden. And then I tried to not grow vegetables because... I thought that growing animals would be easier and I just could not grow vegetables. It's it's something that it's so much fun, you know, and and people love vegetables and so do I. So anyway, it's, it's been a, it's been a journey for sure, but I'm glad of where I was. And so I think it took me some time to get to where I'm at, but I look back and I see those, those instances. I'm like, Oh yeah, that was probably contributing to my mindset at this point. Hey, what's up world? Sorry to interrupt the show, but I need you to do one thing. If you like this show and you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, please take a minute to give me a five-star rating. And while you're there, like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to your podcast. 
So how long have you had your farm? Started this farm in 2013, February of 2013. So I guess what's that, eight years? So you were working on the farm before this one. That's what, like 2011, around there. Yeah, 2010 to 2012 is when I worked on Sunset Farms. And then I had a brief stint here where I had to, you know, land my feet on the ground. I had a a wife and a child to provide for. So I got a job you know, with the local landscaping company and then uh, searched for land and, and started the farm a, a year later. Yeah, you're a decade into this. Yeah. Right. Yep. Hey, you just mentioned early, uh, you just mentioned that you thought raising animals was going to be what more profitable than raising vegetables. I didn't necessarily think it was going to be more profitable. I thought mainly that it was going to be easier. Uh, and, and I say easier in this way, you know, animals in a sense kind of take care of themselves. As long as you're providing an animal with clean food and water and a good environment, it does all the growing by itself. You know, in a way, vegetables are the same, but I didn't see it like that back then. I saw it as, you know, I don't need to tend animals all day long. You know what I'm saying? You know, vegetables, I've got to make sure that I'm cultivating and picking and packing and it's just a lot more labor. And so I was trying to do things a lot by myself, you know, as as I was starting out, I didn't want to hire people. I, I wanted to be able to do everything on my own. So animals I saw as a way to do that. I could have more product with less people. And, but what I've found, especially in running a farm, a diverse farm, is that there are times of the year when animals fund your vegetable operation and vice versa. So the income that you receive from your animal enterprises, they really come in handy in the winter months when you're really not selling a whole lot vegetable wise, or you get, you know, this on the shoulder seasons of the vegetable growing and the vegetables, when feed is you just cranking, you need to buy feed all the time. The vegetables can really help bolster your pocketbook so you can afford it. So it's, it's really beautiful how they work together and it gives you a little bit of a sense of what a lot of the little diversified farms of a hundred years ago or more were working with, how they all kind of you know, took their things to market or had people buying different things. And they, and God, I wish I could talk to somebody who was running a farm 150 years ago and talk to him and be like, so when you're selling this milk, does that mean that that's funding? You know, you can buy your seeds for this or for that. And they'd be like, yes, of course. I'm like, oh, that's how you did it. So anyway. So everything is packed. Pasture raised. Can you explain what pasture raised is? Yeah, so that just means that it's raised in a big open area we call a pasture. And pasture raised, the reason that we use that term is because the term free range and cage free have been kind of hijacked by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They've defined it, you know, as, as the in a government type of way. And because of that, these big producers are able to just barely meet the requirements and call it cage-free or call it uh, free-range. You know, if we give you an example, you'll see in the store a lot, free-range chicken. Yeah, I was about to ask. You mean to tell me my eggs aren't free-range eggs or or cage-free? Right, well, cage-free, so there's, you know, free-range usually refers to meat chickens and and not always, but it does a lot. And cage-free refers more to hens. 
And the reason that cage free came about is because people got wind of the fact that, you know, eggs were, or egg laying hens were grown in a big barn stuffed eight to a cage, you know, not that big of a cage. And they would just lay their eggs and roll down this conveyor belt. That's how they were done. So chickens spent their, basically their whole life in a cage. And so they said, no, we don't like this. We want to have cage free eggs. So great. We're going to have, we're going to get rid of the cages, but it's going to essentially be it's a very similar situation. They're not in cages. They're still in barns. They're not running around outside and eating grass and bugs like you'd want your chickens to. And even free range doesn't necessarily mean that they are outside. It just means that they can go outside if they want to. There's a door and it's open. And if they want to go outside, outside of the climate controlled barn, they can do that. And so pasture raised became a thing. And if anybody ever goes to Whole Foods, they'll see the Vital Farms brand. They talk about pasture raised and they've defined pasture raised not in a government term, but as a certain number of square foot per hen. And that's more getting along the lines of it. But really what we want is we want an active, healthy, you know, salad bar to use a term that's been used for it. We want a diverse pasture where in certain times of year, certain types of things are growing, wildflowers in the spring and, you know, grasses in the summer and in the fall, if you can have anything growing fall and the winter, you're doing well, but you want to provide something for your animals to supplement their diets with. And you want free open air. You want to move. Like, so what we do is we rotate our animals. So where they are, where they hang out for, you know, four to seven days will be different from week to week. So we'll, we have our chickens, our, our egg laying hens in a, in a mobile coop that we call an egg mobile. And they go in there and they sleep at night and they come out and they roam around during the day and they'll lay their eggs inside the egg mobile. And then one night when they go in to roost, we'll close all the doors and in the morning we'll go and we'll move it and then we'll open the doors and they have a whole new space. So that's great because it lets them get off of the place that they were pooping on the past week and the sun gets to sanitize it. That poop gets to actually, sorry, maybe we should say manure. The manure gets to flow down into the, the earth and fertilize the next generation that comes around three or four or five weeks later. So that we have a similar model with our egg, with our meat chickens. They're not quite as, they don't roam quite as much just by nature. And so we have them in, in protected shelters that are, that have a certain, you know, about 120 square foot, but we move those every day. So they're always getting a fresh pasture every day. And the main reason that we have them in those shelters is to protect them against foxes and raccoons and possums. So anyway, that's, that's what we mean by pasture raised. We're raising them on a pasture and ideally a beautiful, healthy pasture that we're rotating also. Do you think it's necessary to have both animals and vegetables on your farm? Like for somebody, if they were looking to get into farming, is that some advice you would give them? Yeah, I think if somebody were looking into getting, if someone were looking into farming to get into, I would say it can be great. A lot of it depends on the person's personality. There are some people's personality that gravitate towards animals and they do animals very, very well. And there's some people that gravitate towards vegetables and they do them very well. And they're not the best as far as you know, animal husbandry and figuring that out. I can't quite figure out what I am. So that's why I grow both. But there also are within the animal agriculture discipline, there are, are a lot of different avenues that use very different parts of your brain. And, I, you know, for chickens, for instance, you know, chickens, you, as long as you're providing them a decent pasture and fresh food and water and you're rotating them, they're going to grow. You harvest them, you sell them. It's pretty simple. 
Now, like beef cows or dairy cows, for instance, very, very different because number one, the size of the animal, but number two, at that point, you're no longer a chicken grower, an animal grower, you're a grass grower and the cows just harvest the grass. So you become a, you know, for, for me and my chickens, I'm a chicken farmer in a sense. For people who raise really great beef cows, they're grass farmers. So they have to learn how the pasture reacts to a certain amounts of rain. They have to look at the mineral balance of the pasture. They're more akin to growing a really healthy vegetable crop over a big period of time. And then they're also letting animals do the harvesting. So it's a very different way of thinking about farming. So there's that. I mean, there's pigs or can be similar to that, but pigs and chickens are very similar in the fact that they have one stomach. So they're going to get the majority of their nutrition from the grain that they eat versus cows, you know, should only eat grass. You know, I'll say with the exception of maybe dairy cows who, when they're really heavy in milk, you know, they can benefit from high energy grains like corn and and things like that. But the majority of their diet should definitely come from grass. And so those are different. So, you know, it kind of just depends. I'd say if you're going to grow beef cows and, you know, chickens and pigs and you don't really need to mess with vegetables but if you have a farm that you want to grow vegetables and you want to also have eggs you know for your people that market and meat chicken there's nothing wrong with that one thing to keep in mind it does like i said before it does help when you're growing animals and harvesting the animals and selling that meat you can do that in times of the year where your vegetables are just not flowing. And so it can contribute to the farm economy in general. But but I'd say start small as far as that's concerned. <laughs> it starts small with anything. Yeah, I agree. What are the crops that you see doing the best for you in North Carolina? Like your seasonal crops that do the best? Yeah, so we, um, you know, the thing that jumps out to me the most, which I know is a, a really maybe obscure answer, but for me, bok choy grows so well. And I can't quite understand why, but um, there's something about bok choy in my region that it, it's like it's on fire. It just it just grows. It's beautiful. It's it's delicious. And it doesn't have a whole, whole lot of pests for us. And I think because it grows so quickly, most times a year, it grows really well. Our region is really well known also for blueberries. I think a lot of it has to do with the types of acid soils that exist around here. I recently just did a big project. I've got it on my YouTube channel that people can check out if they want, but it's, I, um, I transplanted. So, so somebody gave me the opportunity to dig up, you know, up to 300 fully mature blueberry plants and transplant them to my farm. And so I decided to take the project on and it involved a skid steer and a tree spade and a bunch of trailers and a lot of dang work. But it was, it's so worth it because now I've got 300 and something blueberry plants just ready to, to burst open and give me fruit this year that I, that I didn't have last year. So that was, I'm excited about that. Carrots do really well. Anything, any, all the root crops do well because their the roots can penetrate deep into the soil really easily. Uh, and we can pull them up easily. You know, that's one thing about the harvesting carrots and the clay. If that soil is dry, you know, you're going to break the tops off the carrots uh, or you have to lift them out with a fork. For us, you know, we just pull them out. And salads do really, really well. And I say salads, I should say lettuce salad. is a, But yeah, so lettuce, um, spinach does really well. You know, everything pretty much does well if it's grown at the right time a year 
you know, we, we've focused more heavily on certain things than others, mainly because we found that they've sold well. You know, we, we sell to restaurants and consumers who just want to cook at home. And I try to grow things that I can sell to my, you know, home chefs, but that I can also sell in large quantities to my restaurant chefs. And so that's kind of what's dictated what I grow in a lot of ways. Hey, where on your farm did you put the blueberries? We put them in a spot that kind of has, right when you drive in our driveway, there's a little bit of a sink area, kind of a bowl where water flows and pools up when we get a lot of rain. Just to the, I guess it would be west side of that, there's a little bit of a sloping hill on both sides, kind of like a, you imagine what a salad bowl would look like, but just a very graduated dip. So we planted them on both sides of that. So we have, you know, a south-facing slope and a north-facing slope of blueberries. So it's really cool looking out into it because you can see it. It's like this just dip of blueberry plants. There's four rows, and I think they're 200 and something, maybe 220 feet long each. That's going to be a lot of blueberries. I don't quite know how I'm going to harvest them all. Yeah, I'm thinking about getting, sending out a neighborhood you know, uh, notice. Pay in blueberries. Come pick blueberries for the morning. Man, I went to a blueberry farm last year. Maybe like a year. No, no, it was two years ago. I went to a blueberry farm, and it was a pretty great experience. I got to leave with crate or tote full of blueberries. They were amazing. Oh, yeah. Man. Going to a place, a region, I mean, this is just a side note, but places that can grow certain things, like are known for certain things, will blow your mind like i you know down here in coastal north carolina peaches are not something that you really think about you know and and i've never experienced someone who grew a peach here that was a delicious peach but i went up to pennsylvania this one time and we stopped this little roadside you know marketplace and they had it, it was like peach season and we went this thing this place and i got these peaches these little white donut peaches and i bit into that thing and it was like if you can imagine a commercial for somebody who just experienced something crazy <laughs> like it would like zoom into your eyeball and you would go and it would like you'd imagine like being at a water park where there's just peach <laughs> juice everywhere that's kind of how it felt it was so so good and that soil up there and that climate that's what it's known for is tree fruits not only tree fruits but it does it really really well and so you know we have that kind of here in blueberries there's definitely other places in the world where blueberries probably grow better and there's different kinds of blueberries i'll remember that peach the rest of my life yeah, yeah. i didn't know pennsylvania i didn't know they were known for me neither peaches until that day make a trip up there to taste one yeah hey so i was looking around on your website and i saw that you offer a digital course can you explain a little bit about this course yeah so over the years you know as i've gone to farmers markets and you know i interact with people a lot and they inevitably we end up talking about farming and food and gardening and things and so I've gotten a lot of questions over the years of, you know, my tomatoes experiencing this problem, you know, what, what am I, what, what should I do? Or, you know, you know, I want to get my soil tested, but how do I do that? Or I think that, you know, this crop, you know, maybe it's gotten too much water. How can I tell how much water to give my plant? So, you know, about three or four years ago, I started doing in-person workshops of where I would take what I've learned and I would, you know, try to pare it down to five hours and present it to 10 people. And I'd charge a certain amount. They would come out to the farm. We'd do some hands-on and we'd talk about planting. We'd talk about irrigation. We'd talk about soil. We'd talk about testing. And I can tell you this, talking nonstop for five hours and trying to think about the things that you're talking about and teach someone something is incredibly exhausting. And so, you know, I did that four or five times 
And I thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. Because people, and the other thing too, is really hard to get, I've only got, I mainly have weekdays available. Weekends, I've worked all week on the farm and I've got to go to a farmer's market. I'm not trying to have people at my farm and teach them how to grow things on their gardens. But most people can't do a weekday. They've got the weekends. And so that's when um, I had come up with the idea of creating this course where I would go through what I've identified as the major components of organic gardening. And the approach that I've taken is a four pillars approach. And, and so I, I don't focus so much on this course about you know how to have best tomatoes or how to have bug-free spinach or how to have you know these little specifics. I've, I take a sort of a bird's eye view and I back up a little bit and I say, okay, really the goal here is to understand and to create an organic growing system. And we got to do that by, you know, in five ways. Number one, we're going to figure out our plan like we talked about earlier. We're going to figure out what is it we want to grow? What do we want to eat on a weekly basis? How often? And this is then to develop a plan of when we need to do everything. Then we have pillar one, which is soil health and nutrition, which we talked about as well. So we talk about how to, you know, we go over the different aspects of soil, the different minerals in the soil, how to balance them. And these are all video courses. So, you know, it's me talking to this person who's taking this course. Um, so it effectively accomplishes what I was doing, but I think in a more effective way. Number two, we, uh, the second pillar is irrigation, uh, water and irrigation. The third pillar is uh, seeds and plants. So specifically, you know, seeding things, planting things, how, how, do you, how far to space them apart you know, to get your maximum yield. And then number four is protection. Pillar four is protection. So, you know, you do all this work. The last thing you want to do is have something come and destroy it or eat it. You know, it's not their fault. Everybody's trying to eat something, you know, deer, bugs, us. It's just, it's our job to protect the investment we've made. So based on those, that the plan and the four pillars, I've come up with this kind of presentation of this is how you establish and maintain organic system. And if you can do that, if you can follow all these pillars, then anything you put in the ground, you know, should work. You know, as long as you've done your due diligence and you figured out how to do this, uh, you can grow watermelons, you can grow spinach, you can grow carrots, you can grow anything. It's just a matter of, of maintaining your four pillars. And so we have it on an online course platform. It's available on our website. This is organicgardeningclass.com. And we're doing a special a sale right now, uh, which is for the spring. We're trying to get it out and get as many people into it as possible. So we're doing 50% off sale. And you can use the, uh, the coupon code is just grow it just for you. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> So everybody that's listening to this, if you go and type in just grow it to the coupon, you know, the, the promo, whatever on the, on the, our website, you'll get 50% off the course. So it's, yeah, it's really good. And also we offer on, on the, our website, we offer a free seed starting lesson. So one of the lessons that are in our course is, you know, seed starting and they can go on there and get that lesson for free just so you get a taste for what the course is like and how I am as a teacher and if something they think would be a good investment for their gardens. Yes. That's dope. So if everybody listening, if you found this podcast informative, which I'm sure you did, head on over to the website. And I didn't know this until now, but you can put in the code, just grow it and get 50% off. That's dope, man. I, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I got a couple more questions for you, man. How did you come up with the name for your farm? <laughs> 
Oh, the reason I laugh is because I think it's one thing, but people who are very close to me think it's another thing. So I think it's the, you know, the reason is because I I came from basically nothing. You know, like I, I did not grow up with this. I did not have the knowledge of how to do this. So essentially, you know, my farming roots are very humble in the fact that they don't exist. I started, I've tried to figure it out. I've learned a lot over the years and I have, I've just got these humble roots. The second purpose part of that is, you know, if anybody is able to see kind of my logo that I use for everything, it's two hands with kind of like a a farm scene and a tree. And for me, those hands signify God's hands holding me and holding our farm and making everything grow. So I want to make sure that we give all the credit to him and not us. And so we want to maintain that, that humility. So, and, and I laugh because I think I came up with the name Humble Roots, but my sister-in-law thinks that she came up with the name Humble Roots. <laughs> and I can't quite remember who it was. So I just maintain that it was me, if you know what I mean. It was like a decade ago. I'm sure it was you. It was at least a decade ago. You're right. Do you want your kids to be farmers? Yeah, I do. In a lot of ways, you know, I want them. Farming has provided for us in a way that's not just monetary. You know, yes, it pays the bills and it's taken us a while to get to the point where it does pay the bills, but it provides something for my kids that you could not buy with money. You know, it provides a, you know, me, their dad, I'm working at home, essentially. I'm right outside. I'm in this big field. They've got this this big area to run around. They've got 55 acres they live right in the middle of. You know, it's like essentially they live in a, a giant, you know, park. Right. They get to come out. They get to, you know, weed the garden with me if they want to. They get to plant things or harvest with me if they want to. And it provides a really great environment for them to, you know, learn. You know, we're committed to homeschooling our kids. So, you know, my wife, she can, you know, get outside and and experience nature and just things that we have been blessed with that this is the kind of life that farming affords. And so if I can convince them in some way, shape or form to live on a farm, work on a farm, work a farm, have a farm where they can give the same thing to their kids and they're, you know, have the same kind of life that they've grown up with. I think, you know, my goal is to instill the love of nature and still the love of farming so that they're going to want to have it anyway. But, you know, they're their own people. And ultimately, if they they want to do something else, then I'm going to be all about it. But, you know, I think I'm trying to show them how awesome the farming life can be, because I do think it's awesome. I believe in it. You know, growing food for people and for ourselves is a passion that I wake up every day and I'm excited to get out there because I know, you know, the ultimate goal. Yeah. So I want, I definitely want to pass that down to my kids. I love that because uh, I'm trying to do something similar. I want my kids to just love and enjoy gardening and whatever, whichever direction it takes them, whatever they end up doing. I just hope they always have an appreciation for nature, gardening and understanding things are bigger than yourself. Uh, Right. Exactly. Yeah. it's, It's important for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right, man. So how can people get in touch with you? A couple ways. So I've got an Instagram page. You know, I respond to it pretty well as far as you know, direct messages. They can look at me up on YouTube. In my email, you can send me a contact form on my, on my website. I've got a contact form I respond to pretty quickly. Yeah. And my, uh, I think my phone number is there somewhere too. It's really easy to get in touch with me on my website or via Google. You know, Google, my business page, I think is linked to my cell phone and my email address. So love to 
to hear what folks thought about you know anything I said and love to see some people sign up for the gardening course that'd be cool so yeah that's how to do it all right humblerootsfarm.com humblerootsfarm.com and I've got a you know there's a couple other I've got the organicgardeningclass.com but then we have a you know one of the things we didn't really get into and you know in North Carolina we really recently passed legislation to grow industrial hemp so I had somebody one of my customers you know like I, you know, I develop all these connections one of my customers went through this like 10 year uh, might even been longer than that battle with neuropathy from which is basically the destroying of your nerves from drinking toxic water when he was a kid and um, he ended up finding healing through hemp based CBD and so we started he started we started a business basically I grow the hemp and we process it into our own CBD oil and that stuff's at restorationhemp.net so there's some cool stories stuff in there and everything but yeah that's that's the third those are my three websites we're gonna have to get you back on the show for the hemp talk i want to hear about that yeah it's, that's definitely been an experience from hearing about what it can do to growing it to having to burn a whole crop because it tested you know just a little bit too high in thc i've done i've, I've had all that experience oh yeah that'll be on the next one i want to hear those stories yeah man let's do it okay well, I want to say thank you for taking time out of your day today to hop on the show. I really appreciate it. And I also want to say thank you for just being a dope individual and making sure that your kids love gardening, because I think more people need to love gardening and farming and everything related to agriculture. Absolutely. And and everybody needs to get their hands in the dirt. Yeah, man. Because it is a worthy task. Oh, wait, one more thing. What is your YouTube? Because I want to see this blueberry. I want to see these blueberries. <laughs> The YouTube video is called The Amazing Blueberry Project, but my YouTube channel is just Humble Roots Farm. There's a couple things on there. One is I'm calling it a docu-series, but I'm not sure how long it's going to last because it takes me a lot of time. I'm essentially, you know, basically having a camera. And I'm, I follow myself and my crew around as we're doing different things on the farm. And the idea is to just show people a little bit more about what farming is really like. Like this is the kind of thing we do on a daily basis. And there's some funny things. And there's some you know crazy things. And so we've, you know, I created that. I've got three episodes out so far. And uh, there's there's a fourth one. I've just got it finish editing it. So. But it, like I said, it takes me a ton of time. And in the end of the day, I'm a farmer, not a content creator. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, man. I understand. Well, I'm going to head over to YouTube now and I'm going to check out the docuseries. And I definitely want to see this blueberry, I don't know what to call it, project. The amazing blueberry project. There it is. I want to check that out, man. So thanks once again for hopping on the show. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I'll talk to you later. Before I let you go, I need you to do more than one thing. First, I need you to like, comment, subscribe to the podcast. Second, I need you to tell a friend or two about the show if you enjoyed it. And if you have anybody you think I need to talk to, I should interview, send the name over, put it in the comments, or send me an email, igrow at Big City Gardener. And check me out, man, on Instagram and on all social media platforms, Big City Gardener. We out. Oh, almost forgot. Just grow it. <laughs>